folks, my name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all of my fellow teachers out there who are trying to figure out how to balance all of the demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. I'm a settler on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations, and I'm grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. So this week's podcast is going to focus on why relationship is superior to curriculum. Now, I'm not saying that curriculum isn't important, and I'm certainly not saying that relationship is the only thing that matters when we're educating. However, what I am trying to highlight is that our students are going to be able to best learn under conditions in which they feel connection and relationship with their teacher, particularly our most reluctant learners. We all have those ones in our class that uh, we struggle to build relationship with or they're not engaging in the material in the way that we would like. Those are the ones that I'm, I'm talking about mostly here. Of course, I know that curriculum is important and we have government mandates that tell us what needs to be in a course and what needs to be covered and certain outcomes that we need students to try to achieve. And um, so I... I certainly understand the weight of that. I have to do that too, particularly for the English classes that I teach. So essentially what I'll be highlighting here is the importance on building relationship to increase the likelihood that students will engage with and connect in your content, whether that's math and science or English or um, you know some sort of a, an elective like I teach theater. And so these are kind of tried and true ways in which you can build relationship with your classes regardless of content that you teach. This is also relevant for K through 12. Even though I specialize in high school and particularly with reluctant learners, you'll be able to find some of these tools hopefully useful in in any of your classes. You may have to adapt some of the language or some of the way in which you approach these tools, but the goal is for them to be transferable to any kind of grade and subject. So just to get started, We all kind of know this, like it's a theory that we know and we understand and we practice that relationship is going to help you best deliver your curriculum. And not only that, but it's going to improve and increase academic performance in your students. If you're looking for a good quantitative study that kind of supports this concept, there's a a decent one, a good one by um, Jung-Suk Lee, and I'll post all of the information Um, on how you can find that resource in the podcast description there's gonna be a few other ones listed as well another thing that that you know was really focused on in some of these studies is Fowler et al really looked at the level of externalizing pro-social behaviors being demonstrated by students particularly in primary elementary school was significantly influenced by the teacher-student relationship quality and so essentially what they're highlighting here is that Students who are quote unquote acting out or are expressing or demonstrating what can often be considered a behavioral issue in class, they're doing so more often with teachers they don't feel they have a relationship with or that they feel the quality of the relationship is lacking when they don't feel as though they have specific support and nurturing in their classes. And this is true in high school as well. Uh, Most studies look at the effects in elementary school because they have the same teacher kind of all day. And so it is a bit of a different dynamic. As we get into secondary school, people start to look at different factors when it comes to academic success. But Kosier and Tement also look at teacher acceptance, student perceived teacher support, and academic achievement and how all of those three things commingle. And what they discovered is that 
teacher acceptance, so the student feeling as though the teacher accepts them, directly correlates with students' academic performance. The other thing that they noticed is that the student's perceived level of support from their teacher also directly correlates with academic achievement. And so we might think that what we're doing is accepting all of our students all the time, but this is related to students' perceived level of support and perceived accept level of acceptance. And so this is a really important distinction because if a student feels as though their behaviors or the way that they're interpreting um, the curriculum or the content or your classroom management style, all of those kinds of things are going to influence whether or not that student feels accepted. You might completely and wholly accept this student, but do they feel that and is it reciprocated and they understand that you are accepting them based on where they're at? And quite often our, I guess, requirement really to fulfill our curriculum standards and our assessment practices, it can really influence whether or not a student feels accepted. Further to that point, you know, students who experience student-teacher interactions that are characterized by high levels of warmth, support, and then low levels of conflict are also a lot more likely to experience positive academic performance. And they're also much more likely to comply with your classroom rules, teacher expectations, and actually show up and attend. And that's essentially our biggest goal. And we know the correlation between low attendance and low academic performance and high attendance and high academic performance. And so if students are more likely to attend our classes, because they feel safe, nurtured, and more importantly, accepted, then we're already setting students up for superior academic performance and a better relationship to school in general. And so that's really the point here is that it's not about abandoning curriculum in favor of creating uh, relationships with your students and forming these important bonds, but it's about focusing on relationship first and foremost so that you can increase student engagement and improve content delivery. And that's really what we're looking for here, right? We want meaningful relationships with students. We want those lasting connections. And we also want them to have a love of, or if nothing else, not a resentment towards our subject area. So I know that this is a little bit different between elementary and high school. And um, I know that warmth in high school looks really different than it does in elementary school. One of the ways that elementary school often has an opportunity to build relationship would be through some free play. And I mean, of course, I know in elementary school, it's structured free play. But when I was in, when I worked in elementary school, that was one of the things that we would focus on a lot is we would do centers and it gave us opportunities to sit with students in these different centers, play with them and acknowledge that play is a really important De important developmental process. It helps young people let their guard down if they're feeling stressed or anxious, and many students are when they come to school. You know, I'll, I'll talk a lot about anxiety on this podcast at some point too, because I'd say it's probably the number one most pervasive thing that students are struggling with at the moment. But play is a really important way of helping students navigate all of these different social interactions. And when we get to high school, we don't really have opportunities for play in the traditional sense anymore. And high school students, if we were to sit them down with a coloring book, they'd be like, uh, what? Granted, meditative coloring has become big again. And so, I mean, I did this last year. I did do coloring with some of my students. But we often also feel a, a 
pressure and added pressure of making sure that in our hour block with our students or hour and 20 minutes that we get through our curriculum. So it doesn't leave a lot of space for play. And one of my favorite speakers that I've been to see, oh God, so many times at this point is Dr. Gordon Neufeld. And he highlights that play for, for youth takes a completely different form. And quite often what we do is use sarcasm or humor. And so those interactions are more micro-based interactions that we have with our students, but that's how we can demonstrate warmth with our students. We use humor, we use sarcasm, and that kind of back and forth that we can develop with our students is essentially what um, play is for high school. And so not everybody uses sarcasm and not everybody uses humor and I think like I said in my last podcast it's really important that you are authentic to yourself but one of the things that you can start to do is consider how can you apply some flexibility and leniency in your approach so that students can let their guard down too. I also want to just take a moment to note that of course building relationship and um, paying attention to relationship in your class is going to be really different depending on the demographic that you're working with. For instance, I am white, I am cisgender, and I am hetero. And all of those things factor in greatly when I'm working with a very diverse group of young people. My students of color and my students on the LGBTQ2 plus spectrum are going to identify differently with me than my other straight white students. And so It's important to give space for that and acknowledge what your own privilege is within that conversation. Because if you've got a culturally diverse class, and I think most of us do at this point, or at least hopefully most of us do at this point, we need to make sure that we are actually including culturally diverse materials. And I I will be providing links on my website and also just including that in future conversations. But just as a disclaimer here, um, that's a really important variable to consider. And you know, if you have students who are struggling to build relationship with you, that could very well be one of the factors. And then you need to make sure that you're checking your own privilege and your own intersections to determine what's the real reason here, or what's the real barrier to being able to develop relationship with a student who's struggling in your class. So a common trend that we often see in schools and that I've noticed from other teachers, particularly when I was teaching in alternative ed and, and alt ed and working with um high-risk youth is certainly not everyone's cup of tea but one of the things that I noticed is people would come in with a ton teachers would come in with a ton of enthusiasm feeling really friendly and warm and inviting and students would come in feeling immediately hesitant and bringing in with them this experience of anxiety and nervousness and their instinct when they are feeling anxious and nervous is to begin to test boundaries very quickly and they do this not because they are trying to make you mad or ruin your class because they are immediately establishing or trying to find safety for themselves. It's the devil you know, right? And so if students have continually had this experience, and I've talked about this in um, my last blog on Be the Healthy Adult. So if you want more information on that, I recommend you go back and take a look at that blog too. But essentially what we're looking at here is students are testing these boundaries because they are terrified that you're going to write them off very quickly and unfortunately that is because they that has happened to them in the past these responses don't happen in a vacuum it's happened to them before so they're just coming in based on unfortunately learned behavior and learned responses and so 
in response to that boundary testing, the teacher is likely, you know, firm but fair, and the student continues, although it continues to escalate. So it doesn't stop at just the, well, they're, I'm going to show up five minutes late or 10 minutes late, and the teacher's going to tell me to be there on time. Tomorrow, I'm going to show up 20 minutes late, and I'm going to talk to my friend the whole time, and they're going to ask me to put my phone away, and I'm not going to put my phone away. And it's just this kind of persistent cycle. As the student continues to amplify the behavior, the teacher then continues to escalate their response too. So then the consequences get more more extreme and uh, the student begins to struggle in the class if the student is even still showing up. And so now the relationship is damaged and it's really hard to come back from that. It's really difficult to build relationship once there's already been a breach in trust. And unfortunately, that breach in trust happens really quickly. And once that breach in trust has happened, then you've essentially lost the curriculum too. The student might show up, they might still engage, they might get their 50% and pass the class and maybe that's their only goal is to get the 50%, but chances are they're not going to have had a meaningful experience in your class. Who knows, they might even get 100% in your class, but they're not going to have left your class thinking, I have grown so much as an individual. They might know a little bit about the material, and that's great, but they're not going to have had that really impactful experience that they need in order for your class to be memorable and for them to feel like the material has stuck. So one of the reasons here that I say that relationship is more important is that establishing a really strong relationship with your students opens up a lot of opportunities for important conversations in your classes too. So for instance, here's an example. I teach drama and I've said this a few times, but I do a unit on voice every year and inevitably when I do voice I have students asking if they can practice accents and it's rarely the accents like British accents or Australian accents that they're choosing to want to experiment with they're looking at marginalized population accents and in Canada and particularly in Victoria where I'm from um, the dominant culture here is white and so most marginalized groups are of other ethnicities and so students are then wanting to experiment with accents from marginalized populations. I have every single unit now, every time I've ever done voice, I've had the same conversation come up. And it opens the door and the opportunity for us to have a really important conversation about racism and have a really important conversation about the distinction between a marginalized population and the population that is currently in control and holds power in our systems and why it is that it's not offensive to do a British accent at this point. And it's not offensive if students want to do an amplified quote-unquote Canadian accent because those are still systems in our society that hold power over marginalized systems. And so when white folks are doing accents for marginalized systems, it's racist. And it opens up opportunities for us to have really important dialogue about this in my classes. Now, if I was only focused on curriculum, I would just say, no, you can't. You can't do those accents. We're not going to do accents this semester. We're just looking at inflection. We're just looking at volume and pitch and blah, blah, blah. So no, you can't. And then I jump right back into the assignment. Our racism conversation, though, is far more impactful and it gives students a really important understanding when they leave that room about what is and is not racist. And it helps them begin to understand 
the types of systems that we're constantly working in. And that is a really important message for students. It's also really important for them to know that these kinds of things are going to be addressed in school and it doesn't matter which class they're in. If they're coming up, they're going to be taken care of and they're going to be addressed. And that students are safe to make mistakes and it's safe for them to explore and maybe do what would be perceived as the wrong thing because their teacher is going to gently correct and then gently guide and then also educate. And it's in that process of educating them that we actually start to see real change. And now those students, they lead the conversation themselves. So I have a two a split class and it's usually 9, 10 and then 11 and 12. And my 10s now when we get into that conversation, they lead that unit and they lead that conversation on voice and then they say to the nines this is why we can't do accents and so I know because they're well versed in what racism is and they're really finely tuned to what that conversation needs to look like and how to bring people into that conversation rather than shaming them out of it I know that they're also feeling comfortable enough to have those conversations in community and that they're comfortable enough acknowledging their own privilege and bringing that awareness to the other ways in which they engage in the world and so that's really important here and this is why i'm saying like is talking about racism part of my curriculum absolutely not is talking about voice absolutely and so why is it then that you know voice comes up and a very clear opportunity for learning arises and i would just skip over it it doesn't make sense so just keep that kind of in the back of your mind that if we have safe classrooms and if we have relationship with our students enough that we can start to challenge some of these systems, we can teach far more than what our curriculum allows and well outside the boundaries of our curriculum while also paying attention to what our curriculum is, right? So how do we break this cycle? How do we do this? How do we start to establish relationships so that our students feel engaged and connected and supported? Well, the first thing is kind of this, and I have this internal checklist that I go through when I start to debate with a student or I start to notice that there's a conflict arising. And the first thing I do is I pick my battles. And I, I know that we all know this, and I know that this is a really common phrase for teachers, pick your battles. But do we truly practice that all the time? And I think that there are often times when we're engaged in one of those conflicts with a student where we think, if I back down, the rest of the class is going to see it too. And there's this odd kind of dichotomy that exists where we are told both pick your battles, but also set an example or make an example of that student so that other students don't try to take advantage, so that other students see that we're willing to follow through with our consequences. So this is why I'm... I would prioritize, and I'm encouraging folks to consider prioritizing, picking your battles. Consider then letting them win. If they feel that they've already engaged in a battle and they have already started that conflict, consider to yourself who stands to gain more from winning. If you don't see this as a win-lose situation and your student does, then why does it matter for you to win? Why does it matter that you get the last word? And so allowing your student 
to win, quote unquote, win this conflict, I would argue that it doesn't actually lessen um, the amount of respect that they have for you or the amount of respect that the rest of the class has for you. And it doesn't actually put you in a position in which you are uh, being taken advantage of. Winning these quote unquote battles is a huge opportunity for students and it means a lot to them. They can see you model that you're not going to invest in a conflict. It doesn't mean that you're not investing in them, but it means you're not investing in a conflict. And given that their brains are still currently developing and and a lot of students can't necessarily see the difference um, between you know, a reasonable de- debate or critique or, or conversation and immediately jumping into conflict, it's important that we start to model this particularly in high school. Consider then what a natural consequence would be for this student. So for students who are showing up late every single day, for students who are not submitting their work on time, for students who are eager to debate anything and everything that you've said in class, what are the natural consequences? So when I have a student who shows up late, whether it's 10 minutes late every single day or if it's 45 minutes late every single day, they've already faced their natural consequence. What more am I going to be able to impose on them that is going to help them learn to come on time? There isn't anything. There's just me saying, thank you for coming. I'm so glad you're here. This is what we're working on. They already know what they've missed. They already know that they've missed a valuable 45 minutes of engaged learning time. That's important. If you are then adding on an additional consequence, like you can't take the retake the pop quiz or you can't hand in your homework late or you can't do this or you can't do that, what you've effectively said to them is that those things are more valuable than the time that you have with them. And the thing that you should be establishing in order to establish positive relationship is the time that you have with them is the absolute most valuable thing that you have to offer. And so if students are late, the natural consequence is they have missed out on 45 extra minutes with you. And if you establish that in that 45 minutes, you are going to build them up and make them feel as though they are special and wanted and cared for and that they can still learn and that they can still be successful then they're going to start to show up earlier because they're going to want that extra 45 minutes of energy boost and optimism and encouragement. And it might seem contradictory that, okay, well, you know, I have this student who shows up late every single day and it hasn't changed, but your student is still showing up. And so even if your student is showing up late, the fact of the matter is, is that they are still there. And that's really important and that's really meaningful. And so if they're there for 10 minutes or if they're there for the full hour and 20, they have found value and importance in your class. And I bet you if you go and talk to other teachers and you say, hey, is so-and-so late for your class? Then chances are they're saying, oh, actually that person doesn't even show up for my class. Or no, that student's never late for my class. And it gives you an opportunity to now talk to your colleague about why. Why do they show up on time? It is possible that it's just that your class is first thing in the morning and this student who struggles with anxiety and sleep patterns isn't able to get up for 8.30. But there's other possibilities there for you to learn from and then incorporate that into how you work with this student to improve that relationship. The other thing that I keep kind of in my checklist in conversation with students 
is that I'll explain the natural consequences to them. So if a student doesn't hand something in on time, then what I'll say to them, okay, that's fine. I'll accept it whenever you're able to hand something in. And I don't, I don't penalize late. Um, I don't think that that's actually teaching, at least in BC. Our curriculum doesn't say that part of what we're teaching students is to hand things in on time. So if our goal is to assess curriculum, it's actually not to assess whether or not something was submitted on time. That's a side note. But if a student submits something late, what I'll say to them is, okay, well, you know, a natural consequence of you handing this in late is that you have less time now for that other assignment that's also due tomorrow. Are you going to be able to complete that on time? For some students, this is really effective. For other students, they don't see the natural consequence until the week before school's out and they're trying desperately to get all their work done because they're failing. Either way, the natural consequence is there and they're learning from it. Did I need to impose additional consequences to make sure that that student understood my expectations? No, they got it. And I didn't have to jeopardize my relationship with that student in the process. So when we get to the end of the semester, for the student who hasn't handed anything in, maybe their attendance was spotty, we're a week away from report cards, and they say, I know I'm failing, can I still finish these assignments? And I say, sure you can. And they sit down and they hand work in. Yeah, that's going to suck for you as the teacher because, and I get into this situation every semester with a few. Now I'm stuck marking a semester's worth of assignments for one kid. But the student has learned the consequence. They're more stressed than what we could possibly, detention, 15 extra minutes at the end of the day, whatever. There's nothing like a student with a parent hovering over their shoulder saying, you're failing, you need to get this done. And them trying to complete a semester's worth of work in one week. That's the consequence. But now that student, once they've submitted their work, they want to be in your class again next semester. They value that you were willing to be so flexible and so open with them. And they also, I've had more than one occasion where a student has come to me at the end and has said, now I see what you mean by natural consequences. And like I said, for some students, they realize this right away. They get it and they can adjust and adapt. For other students, it takes waiting until the end of the semester. Either way, it doesn't matter. The fact remains that you've established and built that relationship and you haven't let their inability at that point to engage in your material impact your ability to connect with that kid. The other and final thing that I would say is start fresh with them every single day. The next day they show up late, you don't need to talk about how they're late every single day. So just to recap, how do you avoid the cycle of the you know inevitable student pushing boundaries, teacher responding, and then everything escalating? Number one, pick your battles. Number two, consider letting your student quote unquote win. Number three, consider what the natural consequences are rather than imposing consequences. Number four, explain the natural consequences clearly and allow the student time to understand what those consequences mean. And number five, start fresh with the student every single day. So if you're having trouble with difficult students, and I say difficult, not because I find these students difficult, but the relationship can sometimes be difficult. And that is an important distinction. The difficulty doesn't live in the kid. It never does. The difficulty lives in the relationship. And that's, uh, that's an unidentifiable third party that is also existing. And that's you 
the student, and the relationship. So if there's difficulty in your relationship with a student, here are some things that you can try. First of all, validate their behavior instead of condemning them. So here's an example. I had a student once who struggled with behavior in class, was struggling to engage in my drama class. This was a grade 10 student, and this student would consistently show up late, would consistently be on their phone when I had a no phones policy, and would consistently talk over other students. And that's my hard pass, my hard no. And if students are talking over me, I'm pretty easy going with that, doesn't bother me. But it's when students talk over each other that I say like, no, don't do that. So rather than condemning this student's behavior, rather than saying to the student, you need to do this, you need to do that, you have to stop doing this, get out of my room, you're not paying attention, which are all responses that I've thought of having or I have had and then learned that they're not effective. I approach this student after class and I say, I'm noticing some of these behaviors. Can you explain what's going on for you when this happens? This student then responded with, well, actually... I'm very anxious. I don't want to be here. I didn't sign up to take drama. And I was put in this class because I needed the credit to graduate. My response, okay, that makes a lot more sense then. So when you have your phone out, the student interrupts me. Yeah, I have my phone out because I'm really stressed out. So I'm talking to my best friend because she keeps me from leaving the class. And I know that if I fail this class, I don't get to graduate. My response, okay, I get it now. What are you so nervous about when you're in this class? What is it that you think is going to happen? Student. Well, honestly, I think people are going to think I'm stupid. I think they're going to think that I'm not participating well and that I'm not funny. And I know that you have to be funny to be in drama. Me. I'm not funny and I'm in drama every day. Student. You're kind of funny. Me. And this is in my head. I can see that this is starting to build relationship, right? I can see now that the student is starting to tease me a little bit. And so I'm ready to lean into that. My response to the student. Yeah, I'm kind of funny, I guess, but mostly because you guys use me as the butt of your jokes. Student. (laughs) Haha, that's true. Me. Okay. What can I do to make it so that you want to be here? The student. Nothing. I will never want to be in drama. I hate drama. I don't find it fun. And I think everybody else hates me. Me. Okay, fair enough. I don't expect you to like drama. You don't have to like drama. I understand that you do need drama to graduate. So let's try to figure something out. Okay, I'm going to end the conversation there. This is what validating a student's experience is like. It's taking the behavior and acknowledging that it's okay to have it It's okay to choose certain ways to respond and that we are going to adjust and adapt accordingly because that's actually our job. It's not actually the student's job to adjust and adapt to us. It's our job to adjust and adapt to them. Another behavior that teachers often find trying and myself included is that student in the class who wants to debate everything that you say, whether they agree with you or not. Quite often they're doing this because they're posturing. Um, quite often they're doing this to try to prove something to their friends or you know, look a certain way in the front of the class or maybe they are actually really insecure about their abilities in your class. Key bottom line here is that this student is trying to challenge you. One of my favorite tricks when a student is trying to challenge me in a class is the quote unquote yes and approach. 
And this is a theater thing that when you're in improv, you do yes and, and you accept the offer and then you add to it. And I apply this when students are challenging me in class. With what they say, I'll respond with, yes, exactly. And then I rephrase what they've said. And quite often I'll rephrase it so that students are actually getting what it is that I want them to get out of that lesson. So if that student had just challenged me on something that they'd said, it might have been totally off base of what I was saying. But if I say, yes, okay, cool. And how about this? All of a sudden that student thinks that I'm completely validating their approach and their opinion. And it's not that I'm not validating it. It's just that I'm redirecting. And so then that student is able to let their guard down because they feel as though they have looked like an expert in the class. The teacher agrees with them. What students are actually going to hang on to is the last thing that was said. And so if you're saying yes and, and you're tacking on to the end of that, your example, your specific lesson that you're hoping they get out of it, that's what students are going to remember. And then what they're going to remember is, oh, so-and-so already knew that. That's cool. And now both of you have saved face. And not only have both of you saved face, but you've given an opportunity for that student to feel connected to you. By jumping onto a student who is trying to debate something and immediately saying that they are incorrect, what we're doing is putting them in a position where they have to prove their intelligence and their worth in the class. And that's a really precarious position to be in with a student. Because if a student is willing to debate with you about anything and everything, then we're not going to solve that problem by giving them more reason to debate. We are going to solve that problem by acknowledging that we don't actually see it as, as a debate. We said that, see them as an ally in our teaching. And when we bring them in, it makes the student want to educate themselves more on that topic so that they can continue to ally teach with you. And it's a really meaningful exchange that can happen. And one example this last year, when I was teaching English 10, I was doing a lesson on bias. And uh, I brought in an article on bias and we're talking about bias in news. I brought in a few different articles and I'm really big on language and how language is used to express bias. So I had brought this up and I had put on a bunch of headlines on the board for students to look at and we had started talking about bias in news headlines. And this student immediately started to say, well, news is objective. And I said, can you tell me more about that? And so the student started to tell me, well, objective means that they don't have a bias and, and the news is just reporting on clear, cold, hard facts. And so, no, there is no bias in the news. My response, exactly. Yes, totally. There's never supposed to be a bias in the news. You're totally right. When we look at our headlines, we assume that the news is unbiased because they're reporting on facts. Good point. So what we want to look at then is where is it that our inherent personal biases are showing up in the news? Thank you. Yes, that's what I was trying to get at. Now the student's thinking, wait, that's not what I was saying, but hold on. The whole class is looking at me as an expert now. So now all of a sudden the student's looking at these things differently. And he says to me, so inherent bias, like if I was writing a headline, right, this is what that would look like. If, the, if these were my political views. And I said, yeah, totally. Actually, we're going to do this. Can everybody please write one headline on one of these five subjects that are going on, topics that are going on in our city right now? Write yourself a headline and then switch it with your partner and see if they can identify the bias. If you're having trouble identifying the bias, maybe take it over to so-and-so because I think he's got a really clear idea of what bias looks like right now. Or you can bring it to me. 
Nine times out of 10, the students are going to bring it to you to show bias because it's very vulnerable to take it to a peer. However, that student is now put in a position of being not only your ally, but your co-teacher. And now he's no longer trying to challenge me. He's trying to support me in my lesson planning and my and other students learning. And so now this student who was a chronic late attender, who was chronically handing in assignments late or not at all, started to hand in his assignments early so that I, he could get my feedback, started to ask me questions about the lessons because he wanted to be able to be an expert on them too. And every time he would challenge one of my lessons, I would just say, yeah, totally, absolutely. Now, what about this? And now, even though his stance was coming at me from a point of trying to challenge, he no longer felt the need to do that because I was willing to position him as an authority. I didn't need to be the person holding power in the class. Debating is just a student's attempt to challenge authority. Let them. We don't need to be authoritative to have respect and control in our classes. So that, I just wanted to kind of highlight that as being a the yes and rule is what I call it. And I found it super useful in those kinds of contexts and really helped to build engagement with reluctant learners. These are all the reasons that I think that relationship is better than curriculum because we are then able to best support our students and best develop our curriculum when we have a strong relationship. And sometimes that's really hard with our most reluctant learners, but I'm hoping that these tips have helped you to be able to build relationship with your reluctant learners um, and have given you some kind of food for thought in how you approach your curriculum development and your curriculum implementation. If you're looking for other ways to build relationship and other relationship building activities, you can check out my blog at thecontemporaryeducator.com. I'll also be talking a lot about mental health, both in my blog and in future podcasts. So if that's an area that you feel you need some support in, check it out, subscribe, follow me on Instagram at the contemporary educator. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, I would really love to hear from you. And I'd also love to hear all about your adventures as another contemporary educator. So hit me up on my website and I hope to hear from you soon.